Greetings, my good people. What is happening? What is going on? How are we feeling? Hope your Monday and your week is off to a tremendous start as we're just two days. That's right, count them, 48 hours away from the start of spring as I welcome it with open arms. And even though it won't be 70 to 75 degrees right off the bat, knowing that warmer days do lie ahead and that they're coming much sooner than later, which is music to my ears. But with that being said, forget about music, forget about weather. Let's just get to some sports. Here on the latest edition of the J Reels podcast, I am your host, J Reels. For those listening for the very first time, I welcome you guys aboard. Thank you very much for downloading and listening to this content as far as what, is this, what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports. And for those who have been with me on this journey from the very first episode till now, I welcome you guys back. What we'll discuss, the NFL and all the free agent frenzy as well as the trades are concerned. For those who didn't get my take on Odo Beckham Jr. last week, I had an instant reaction to the trade last Tuesday. It's all on my Instagram feed as well as my Twitter so please go there. J Reels is the Instagram feed, and uh, J Reels One is my handle, just a number. If you want to get my instant reaction, but of course we'll recap the crazy week in NFL free agency. We'll get into Major League Baseball, which we're now ten days away from opening day. Some rule changes, as well as the Yankees, Luis Severino on the shelf. How that's just going to be a blip on the radar screen for them. We'll get into everything that's happening in the association, as well as the NHL. But we're going to kick it off. That's right. Let the madness begin as the tournament will start in earnest tomorrow night in Dayton, Ohio, as well as Wednesday. And we have a local team that's going to be involved, the St. John's Red Storm. We'll get into all that. And I will preface it by saying that college basketball over the years, if you've listened to this podcast, certainly has not been the same going back for the last 20 years. And I'm not going to come on here and fake the funk and give you some sort of expert analysis on the college basketball season, on a bunch of these teams. I'm just going based on storylines, based on what I've read, and a little bit of what I've seen. I'm certainly not coming on here sounding like I'm Jay Billis or John Rothstein, but at the same time, I'm not coming on here and just saying, well, here's my Final Four prediction. All number one seeds are going to make it just like former President Obama used to do, which, no offense, Got mad respect for Barack, mad respect for his sports knowledge, but I'm just not going to fill out a bracket and just say, okay, well, it's going to be Duke, Virginia, North Carolina, Gonzaga. No. I mean, please, why even bother if that's going to be the case? But with that said, people, with everything that's going to take place here over the course of the next, let's say, uh, I don't know, geez, because to me the tournament really, when we look at it, it does start on Thursday at 12 noon. Excuse me, but you have to include the playing games tomorrow and Wednesday night, and we'll start there because the Johnnies, who, as we all know here locally, had a, for them, had a very good year, just like any other college basketball team that had just been on the bubble or were able to make it into the tournament, who aren't the dominant top seeds, you know, whether you're the Seton Halls of the world, you know, teams like that, who certainly had a case for being in the tournament, but at the same time, a lot of people wondered if they were to make it. And St. John's, they were pretty much going to be a shoe-in. But now that they're here, and this is the first time they've been in the tournament since 2015, we know the coaches and Chris Mullen, who is pretty much the face of the franchise, so to speak, or face of the college campus when you go around there out in Union Turnpike over there in Kew Gardens. But with the Johnnies and what they're trying to establish here is hopefully some momentum. Because this first game as they play against Arizona State for the right to then play Buffalo 
in the West region. The only thing, if you're looking at, if you're Chris Mullen and company, is not only just get this win. I mean, that's obvious. You know, you want to win this game. You want to be part of the field. You want to be part of the madness, quote unquote. And in order to get there, you're going to have to win this game. Now, what do I know about Arizona State people? I Please. I couldn't even tell you if the whole team came off the bus, walked up to the building to whatever floor that I'm on, and introduced themselves. I'd be like, oh, okay, well, this is Arizona State. So from the standpoint of this, Johnny's a concern, the Red Storm, obviously you want to win this game. You feel like you can win this game. I mean, why not? You're an 11 seed. You're going up against another 11 seed in Arizona State. But my thing is that you want to be able to go into this tournament and try to make some noise because, as we know, this is a team that is trying to build an establishment for not just this year but for years to come. They want to be a staple just like they were in the 80s, just like when Chris Mullen was at the helm there back in the Carnesecca days when the Big East certainly started to take off. You want to be able to get yourselves on that magic carpet ride not only toward respectability but towards that mantle of college basketball teams where you say, hey, do we belong there with the Dukes, the Kentuckys, the North Carolinas? Probably not. But we want to be on that second, even third tier. And this is the moment for this team to kind of make a stand. Because in 2015, they made it into the NCAA tournament out in the first round. Before that, it was 2011, they were out in the second round when Gonzaga beat them. And now, here you are where you're playing in a region in the West. And funny enough, it's in the same region as Gonzaga, which the Johnnies have had bad luck against them over the years. But when you go into this particular bracket, you're going up against teams that, let's face it, I understand people are going to look at a Texas Tech team and say, hey, you know, obviously they've been very strong this year. A lot of people have actually picked them in their brackets that I've seen early on to make it to a Final Four. And we own Michigan with Beeline. He's been a great tournament coach. And he certainly has the pedigree to take this team to a Final Four. And I'm not going to sit here and wave the red and white pom-poms to St. John's to get it you know, to a Sweet 16 or an Elite Eight or even, let's say, dare I say, a Final Four. But you know what? This is where you, you make your stand. This is where you beat Arizona State. And you go up against a Buffalo team that's had a phenomenal year. 31-3, great record. But you could go in there as an underdog feeling that, hey, if somehow, some way we could steal that game and then you take your chance against Texas Tech and Northern Kentucky, roll the dice and who knows? I think by them beating Arizona and if they somehow, some way win that first game against Buffalo, then it's house money the rest of the way. And then you only hope to recruit, build, and try to get that team into the tournament next year and hopefully become a mainstay. Because as you've seen here, they've only been in the tournament. This is the second time in eight years. And I understand that was a lifetime ago with St. John's when the heyday of Chris Mullen, Mark Jackson, Walter Berry, etc. But they're trying to get back to that. They're trying to get that respectability back. And that's why I mentioned earlier, they want to get to that second tier. They want to get to that third tier of college teams where it's when you hear St. John's, oh, it's an automatic. Not St. John's like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that was the team back in the 80s. What, they made a tournament? You don't want to be questioned when it comes to playing in these games or playing in this tournament. You want to be that mainstay. And to me, this is important for them. This is a very big step for 
St. John's, and listen, I'm a Georgetown fan, and Georgetown, they've obviously, they were one and done in the Big East tournament, and they're playing in the NIT, big whoop. But if you're a Georgetown fan, you never root for St. John's. But guess what? I am actually rooting for them. I hope they make it for a deep run. You know, let the Big East represent. As we know, we have Villain over there. We have Seton Hall there. We have Marquette there. Why not St. John's? Why not they can make a case for at least going into that third game now? Because you can't say the second game because their first game is going to be coming on Wednesday. But let's say they make it to Sunday. And let's say, hey, they could be in the game against Northern Kentucky or Texas Tech, whomever they, that they may play. And I understand that's looking far ahead. I understand that's bypassing Buffalo and you can't bypass them. But why can't they be Buffalo? Why can't they go in there and not only just make it a game, but go in there and maybe steal a game? Isn't that what the tournament's all about? So if you're St. John's, I know you're ecstatic. I'm sure you're probably not happy that you're in the playing game, but so what? It's almost like the wild card game for the American League and National League to get to the division series. So what? You're in. doesn't matter. If you lose the game... Does it feel like you never made the tournament? I can understand that. But would you rather be here, St. John's, the NIT, or worse, off on campus, ready to recruit for next year? No, I'm sure you'd want to play Wednesday night. And as far as the tournament is, you know, on a whole, I told you about the, the local fair, St. John's. Obviously, to get off that for a second, Seton Hall had a great run to the Big East final, losing in a close game to Villanova. Although they're down the turnpike, but Villanova, of course, has a big play in all this as they've won the national title two of the last three years. And here they go in as a sixth seed. But I'm going to go by region to break down these brackets. And I'm not going to get crazy, people, as I've said to you. And I understand I may shortchange the college basketball fans. Like, oh, listen, for those listening for the first time and you want to get that college basketball fix, as I said at the top, I'm not here to project or to be that guy that's going to come on and say, oh, well, Yeah, I know who's on Belmont. If they make it to, you know, they play Temple, of course, but if they go up against Maryland, oh, I can tell you who, you know, the top players are there. Or, you know, am I going to sit here and I'm going to break down, you know, Georgia State against Houston in the Midwest? Of course not. But what I'm going to tell you is, as we start in the East, we all know that Duke, and you know what? Let's start there before I even get to the brackets. Duke, as I said weeks ago, if you listened to the podcast, and this was before Zion got hurt, and as we've seen, Zion has come back in uh, just dominating fashion there in this ACC tournament. Duke is going to be pretty much the top story and 1A here this tournament. A, it's fairly about can they make it to a Final Four? Can they get to the championship game? And are they going to be the champions? And then the 1A is going to be Zion Williamson. Because the spotlight's going to be on him. And I think it's going to be a good thing because people want to see Zion Williamson in the big spot. They want to see him perform at the highest level. And obviously here in New York, if the ping pong balls fall where they may, everybody's going to be salivating at the thought of what Zion Williamson's going to bring to the Knicks if they are so fortunate that the basketball gods shine on Madison Square Garden whatever that second Tuesday or third Tuesday in May is when the draft lottery is being held. 
So Duke, as we all know, is going to be the top story, but even more so Zion Williamson and how he performs. And as we've seen over the weekend in the ACC tournament, how he was 13 for 13 against Syracuse and was the tournament MVP. I mean, do you think he's ready for primetime? So when you look at the East, and to me, that's the top two storylines, or the one and one A. So you got Duke, and when you look at that bracket on a whole, you know, Michigan State, obviously we know about Tom Izzo. Now, he hasn't won a title in now 19 years. Although he's had great runs, we all know his successes. Now he's foiled against Krzyzewski the last couple times they met here in the tournament, but who knows? Maybe if they meet in the regional final, will he finally get his due to beat Krzyzewski in a big spot? Obviously remains to be seen. But, you know, looking here in this bracket, I know a lot of people may look at Vatek as a threat. I know other teams here that people are going to probably fill out their brackets with. You know, LSU, of course, is a three seed. You know, you look at VCU, you think of Virginia Commonwealth, I think of Shaka Smart. I think about those days when, obviously, they made it in 2011 to the Final Four, but obviously he's no longer there. But here, to me, if this isn't going to be Duke's reason to win, I mean, I'm not going to say it's a cakewalk because it'll be fascinating to see if Michigan State can somehow, some way beat Duke if they do ever meet in a regional final. But as I look at all these brackets, to me, this is the least sexy bracket or sexiest bracket. That in the South, and I'll get to them in a minute. To me, when you look at the West, that is the most stacked bracket there is. Because when you have Gonzaga, and we know the type of year they've had, you know, we talked about Michigan and Beeline's pedigree as far as coaching in these tournaments. Texas Tech, Florida State, who I think has a chance to get to a Final Four. And granted that they lost to Duke in the ACC Final, but a lot of people think they could be a serious threat to get to a Final Four. You know, you have Murray State in this bracket with John Morant, who a lot of people think that he could be maybe the second player chosen in the NBA draft. So a lot of people, a lot of NBA teams and a lot of the prognosticators are going to look at Murray State to see how far they could uh, make a run here. And they're a 12 seed, but they're going up against Marquette, which Marquette has had a big year in the Big East. Syracuse, can't forget them. They're an 8-9 seed. Now they'll go up against Gonzaga if they do win, but we know how Bayheim is in these tournament games. I understand he may not go to a final a la Sands 2003. And even though, of course, we know he went in 96 and before that, 1987. But Bayheim has certainly been successful in the tournament. Nobody seems to be able to solve that, his famous 2-3 zone until it gets solved. So when you look at this bracket, obviously you got a bunch of sexy teams. And again, you have even St. John's are going to be in that bracket too, provided that they win Wednesday night in Dayton. As far as the South is concerned, Virginia, and that's to me the second storyline. We all know what happened to them last year. Obviously on the wrong end of history when you look at them losing to you know, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. How they bounce back after that embarrassment. Now, again, they're not the number one seed overall. They are the number one seed in their region. Duke is the number one overall favorite. But Virginia has a lot of Questions to answer, and it remains to be seen how they're going to perform here 
as they host Gardner-Webb here in this first round or in this first game come this week. And when you look at that bracket, you know, Wisconsin, as we all know, a lot of people look at them as uh, been a tournament darling over the years. Obviously not the same Wisconsin team from years past, but still. Tennessee, who, listen, you can't knock what they've done. Obviously they won their conference, but at the same time, Tennessee has not been a lights-out tournament team. They're usually one of those teams like Texas. You know, Texas is that prototypical, like, dominant or borderline dominant. I don't want to get too far. But they have great regular seasons. They have great records. But then they get to the this is a postseason, but they get to the tournament, and then what happens? You know, they're out in the second round, or they get to a Sweet 16 and lose. They can't get to an Elite Eight. So Tennessee, that's another team that has a lot of questions that need to be answered. And then, you know, Purdue. I think of Purdue. I think of the Gene Keady teams from yesteryear. But you have that one team that's in this bracket that kind of falls below the radar a bit because of where they're seated, and rightfully so because they have not had a great year. But then there's Villanova. And Villanova's kind of waving their hand saying, hey, here we are. Yeah, you can look at Virginia. Yeah, you can look at Tennessee. Yeah, why not? Hey, give Purdue a shot. Yeah, Kansas State. Kansas State could be another dangerous team. Bruce Weber. I get that. But hey, don't forget us. We've only been to the Final Four and obviously won championships two of the last three years. And again, although they're not a strong team and strong like their predecessors, but still... In order to beat the best, you got to be, you know, be the best, you got to beat the best. And right now, they're the defending champs. And I think that they fall in a great bracket because it's not as if they're in a Duke bracket in the East or that loaded West bracket. They're in a bracket where they could actually win. It's going to be easy? Of course not. But who would bet against them considering that their first round game, they're going to play St. Mary's. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then they'll probably match up against Purdue. And that's going to be the tricky game because then, let's say they get to a Sweet 16 and then what happens is that they'll go ahead and play. Chances are, and again, this is all speculation, people. But, you know, they'll go up against Tennessee if they have to, you know, to meet them. And then if they do face a Virginia, now Virginia's had a dominant year. They've only lost three games this year, but still. Would you under- underestimate Villanova at that point knowing that they've gotten two, three, four wins under the belt that they can't make a run at this thing? Or really, I should say two or three wins because obviously if you get to the fourth win, then you're in the final four. But once you get to that regional semi or the regional final, it'd be tough to bet against them unless an injury occurs where one of their top players are out. And that, you know, we we certainly can't forecast. But at the same time, you certainly can't count them out considering that the bracket that they're in, at least based on what I see here. And then in the Midwest, with Carolina, the one seed there, you know, Kentucky, I know the big game locally with Seton Hall is Warford. Warford has never won a tournament game. They've actually gone up in the rankings here as far as their seeding is concerned over the years because Warford was that typical 14 or 15 seed in whatever region that they're coming out of. And here they're actually seven. They've had a very good year. Seton Hall's going to have a tough fight. They're going to be up against it here because Walford, they're looking for that first tournament win, and they feel like this is going to be the best shot to get it. 
So Seton Hall certainly has their work cut out for them. But when you look at this you know, region as well, Kansas, and North Carolina's going up against Iona, not to discount them because they're a local team here in the Northeast uh, out of New Rochelle, just north of the Bronx. But of course, we're not going to expect them to go. They'll be one and done here in this tournament because even though last year with Virginia losing as a one seed in historic fashion, a lot of people are going to look at these four matchups. Oh, could it happen again? And sadly, Virginia is the number one, as we just talked about a few minutes ago. But you're probably not going to see that for another two lifetimes. I mean, it took forever for a one seed to finally go down in the opening game. Do you think it's going to happen this year or anytime soon? I think not. But then, looking at this Midwest region, I get that you have Carolina, Kentucky, you have you know, Kansas. Those are three of the behemoths of college basketball. You know, Houston's had a just a tremendous year. But who's going to come out of this? Listen, people, as I've said before, as I break down this Final Four, now, I, I'm not going chalk. There's no way. I like to mix it up. Part of it is gut. Part of it is not just, you know, picking a name out of a hat either. But when I'm looking at this Final Four, how could you go against Duke? And I can't stand Duke. Cannot. I hope they get picked off before then, but the Zion mania is in full effect and I can't see that express train being halted at any point. So you're going to see them in Minneapolis. I'm picking Florida State out of the West. Gonzaga, I know they've had a great year, and Gonzaga's been a very good tournament team. But I, I could see Gonzaga getting picked off here. They'll, they'll probably make it to a regional final against Florida State. But again, I'm not picking a one seed, and I'm not going to pick a two seed either. You're not going to base all these picks on fluff. And I get that it's a little risky when you're picking threes and fours, whatever, but hey, why not? As far as the South is concerned, I don't believe in Virginia. I don't believe in Tennessee. Purdue, I got to see more. I'm sorry. Until further notice, I'm picking Villanova. And I understand that may be a reach at six. It's not a strong Villanova team. I get that, but I think they got some momentum. And I know it's dangerous when you have a team that wins a conference championship, which I might add, Villanova's won for the third straight year in the Big East. It's never happened, which I found startling considering the great Georgetown teams, even the Jim Calhoun Connecticut teams, they never won three straight Big East titles. So it says a lot about Villanova and what they've done. So I think that they're going to peak at the right time. Remember, they lost some bad games weeks ago. They lost to Georgetown, St. John's, when they were down double digits in the second half, they came back and beat them. They lost to Xavier. I, they lost to teams that, let's face it, maybe they were just disinterested. Who knows? But now I think the engine is revved up, and I think they're ready for one last run. So I got them going. And then in the Midwest, North Carolina, I get that they had a great year. But one team that's kind of flown under the radar, and I know they're Kentucky, and Kentucky never flies under the radar, but... For whatever the reason, you know, this isn't their strongest team. You know, people look at Kentucky, they think of all the players of the past. We don't have to get into it. You know, John Walls, Anthony Davis, Boogie Cutler, all those players. But now this is a team that's kind of, I feel, under the radar because everybody's looking at Duke, everybody's looking at Virginia, everybody's looking at the top seeds, and everybody's looking at some of the other teams. But just like Villanova, Kentucky, to me, kind of just waiting in the weeds. 
to just come out and pounce. And I think they're going to get out of the Midwest and play Villanova in the Final Four, and then you have Duke and Florida State as your other two teams. And what the hell. Let's have the rematch, the game that started it all. The Zion mania began back in that game late November. I forgot where they played it, where Duke just annihilated Kentucky. What was it, 118 to 84 or something like that? Where Stephen A. came on and said, oh, Duke's going undefeated this year. Let it come full circle for a national title in Minneapolis. And we know the Duke-Kentucky history. Christian Leitner, then the regional finals, all the games. We know it. And I think it'd be a sexy final. And why not? Let it come full circle from that very first game where they got blown out to who's going to hold the trophy there come April 8th in Minneapolis. Duke and Kentucky is your final. And I'm picking Kentucky to win. I'm not picking Duke. Because I'm sure everybody's going to look at that game if Duke plays Kentucky in the final. They're going to look at the game that happened in November and it's going to be Duke, 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 Duke. And then next thing you know, Kentucky's going to be cutting the nets down with another national title, which doesn't bode well if you're a Yankee hater because every time Kentucky wins a title, it seems the Yankees won a World Series that year. Although it didn't happen in 2012, thank goodness. But just keep that in mind as we move along. If Kentucky does win a title for the Yankee fan, that probably bodes well despite the fact that they did not win a championship the year Anthony Davis was on campus in the 2012 year. All right, let's turn our attention now to the NFL and everything that had happened there in the uh, League of the Shield. What can I tell you? Every year it seems to just be crazier and get crazier. What can you say? Now, I understand the rumblings and the aftermath of the Odell Beckham Jr. trade was one that nobody saw coming. I was actually out that night and I happened to look at my phone. I see breaking news. Browns trade OBJ or trade for OBJ and what they got in return. All I can say is this. If you're a Giant fan and I understand they're mixed, maybe the majority is what the heck are we doing? Why are we trading away our best player? Yada, yada, yada. I know my guy Scott, who's a longtime Giant fan. That's what he said. He couldn't believe that the Giants would make a trade like that, and we argued back and forth. And me personally, knowing that I had my own diva wide receiver that I dealt with in Pittsburgh, but to me, this was a deal, not necessarily that the Giants had to make, because it was complicated. They have $16 million in dead money that's on their salary cap this year, so it was a big risk, risk from that regard, because here is they're trying to retool their team on the fly, and we'll get into Eli in a second, because that, that happens to be part of the equation. As they're doing that, knowing that they're getting rid of their most talented player and what you're trying to get in return was some high-quality draft picks. And I get that you look at the Browns' 17th pick overall, their third-round pick, and also Jabril Peppers, who comes into the trade as a safety who replaces Landon Collins, who got his own big deal, six years for $84 million, which that, please, I fell out of my chair when I read that. But a lot of the Giant fans look at that and say, wait, what about all that talk about two number ones? What about all this discussion about trying to fleece? If the Steelers were only able to, you know, they gave up, uh, they only got a third and a fifth, and you can't compare the two because they're two different situations. But the point of the matter is, is that why is it that we didn't get more for this talent? Well, part of it is, is that the Giants, would, I'm sure at that point, they would just want to get rid of them. 
And they didn't get rid of him for nothing. I mean, they do have two picks in their, I don't want to say war chest. That was the first thing I was thinking of. But they got two picks in their arsenal. And now they can do whatever it takes to, well, they want to draft a quarterback, which we'll get to in a minute, a defensive player, whatever it may be, and they have another pick just 11 ones down. And to think they actually overall, I believe they have 11 draft choices and five in the first 100. So when you're trying to dissect this deal and you look at it from a standpoint that you may have been shortchanged, you got to be off your rocker. Because part of the reason why he's out of here is because he's a headache. And as I said last week about Antonio Brown, you don't have to worry about this three-ring circus anymore. It's done. It's over. So despite the fact that you're going to be disgruntled and you're going to wonder why they traded him and he still had four years left and he just signed him, and granted that Dave Gettleman had some questions to answer as far as twice being on record saying that we didn't sign Odell to trade him. Well, guess what? I bet you it was a thing where the Browns reached out to them as a fielder to say, hey, what would it take to get Odo Beckham Jr.? And I'm sure they came up with whatever it was. I guess it was a first, a third. Maybe they tried to get two number ones. And they're like, nah, no good. I'm sure they probably didn't even go that far. They probably said, okay, well, we've got to start with the number one pick. Okay, great. How about we get a third? All right, fine. And you know what? We need a safety. How about your Peppers? Deal. Because I'm sure if the Giants came out and said, all right, we want your number one this year, next year, they would have hung up the phone. So I'm sure the Giants entertaining that thought, especially Gettleman and the owner, John Mara, the way they dissected it was that, hey, if we can get him off the team and this is what we're going to get in return, then let's go for it. And kudos to them. Very shrewd move. A big move. It's a franchise. I want to say, I don't want to say franchise altering, but it's a franchise changing move. Move Because now, here's a organization that has certainly been in dire straits over the last six, seven years since they won that last Super Bowl, 46 in Indianapolis. Right? They made the postseason when they lost to Green Bay, but we all know what happened there leading up to the boat incident with Ola Beckham Jr. and company. And then you had the 3-13 and year two years ago, and then last year, just abominable. Even when you drafted Saquon Barkley, where a lot of people thought you should have drafted a quarterback, me included. And now here they are again, where they're going to draft high. They have another pick coming through this trade and a bunch of other picks that Gettleman has to get right in order for this franchise to kind of get back to some sort of semblance of what they once were. And I thought it was a shrewd move. I understand I'm not a Giant fan. And I get that the Antonio Brown situation is different from this Odell Beckham Jr. deal, but guess what? All you got to look at it from this perspective, Giant fans, that the circus has left town. You don't have to deal with it anymore. Because that act gets tired. Just like Antonio's act got tired. And now you start over. But now here's the thing. It comes with a caveat. Eli Manning was due a roster bonus yesterday of $5 million, which if he was cut before then, obviously he wouldn't have been paid that. They would have severed ties, and away we go. So now if you're Dave Gettleman, what is the plan? We all know that from last week, that's all you've heard. What is his plan? What's, what's going to happen here? Is Eli going to be gone? You would think that by trading Odell Beckham Jr., that means that Odell could be next, uh, sorry, Eli could be next in line. And how I looked at it, 
was that was going to be the case. An aging quarterback, I understand a legendary quarterback in this town. We know the resume, everything he's done, we get that. But he's not the same player. He hasn't been as productive. You kind of wonder, even with Saquon Barkley in the mix, is this a team that could make a push to a division title or, dare I say, a long, deep playoff run? Now, they brought some personnel in since then. Golden Tate, who's now in the fold and is proud to be a Giant and is a good, hard-nosed player. I think he'd be a, he's going to be a good addition to that offense to go along with Sterling Shepard, Evan Ingram. Right, is he older Beckham Jr.? No, you're not going to compare him to that. But you know what? Your team doesn't need the flash. It doesn't need the explosiveness. It just needs a quality wide receiver, and that's what Golden Tate is. So now, if you're the Giants and you bring Golden Tate in, you know that Eli's obviously he's here now. So the deadline comes and goes. So what's Gettleman's plan? If he drafts a quarterback, he's going to look like an idiot. And I get that even going back to last year, the Giant brass certainly wasn't high on any of the quarterbacks that were coming off the board. And I bet they still feel the same way. You would think Kyler Murray's going to be gone at number one. And I was even more surprised that the Giants went to speak to Kyler Murray the day after they traded Oldo Beckham Jr. to make me wonder, or I'm sure to make all their fans wonder, that, hey, wait a second, what are you doing talking to this kid knowing that you're going to have no shot to get him because the worst-kept secret is that Arizona and Cliff Kingsbury wants him, and then they'll trade Josh Rosen. So why, why are you even entertaining the thought of talking to this kid when you're not going to get him? And what does that mean for your incumbent? Does that mean he's going to be gone? So the Giants are sending all these mixed signals, trading Odell, seeing, having a visit with Kyler Murray, and you're thinking, wait a second, this may happen. And then it doesn't. So Gettleman, I don't know what's going to, that draft pick at number six, unless they trade up between now and then, and it remains to be seen, I tell you, it's going to be very fascinating. And all I can say is this, I said it last week, if you listened to my vlog on my instant reaction to Odell Beckham Jr., I said, you got to cut ties with Eli. It's time. And for the Giant fan who wants to get on my case, oh, you could say the same thing for Ben Roethlisberger. You know, hey, he's 37 years old. He's at the tail end of his career, so on and so forth. Well, yeah, he just came off of a year where he threw for over 5,000 yards, led the league in passing for what that's worth. But at the same time, it's still been productive, unlike Eli Manning. And I'm sure if anybody, any football fan out there, right now, I'm not saying for career, I'm not saying for Super Bowls, whatever. Right now, if you were to have this guy as a quarterback of your team, who would you choose, Ben Roethlisberger, Eli Manning? It shouldn't even be close. And I'm not saying that because I got the black and gold pom-poms out. It's just facts. If that was Ben in Eli's shoes, I'd say, you know what, Ben? I love you. Thanks for the memories. Thanks for the throw to San Antonio in the corner of the end zone. But it's time. Because in this league, you've got to find your next quarterback. Because if you don't, and Lord knows, again, do I have to tell you the list of quarterbacks between Terry Bradshaw and Ben Roethlisberger? And granted that Neil O'Donnell took us to a Super Bowl, Super Bowl 30, but still, I go through the whole laundry list, and it's not a pretty one. So if you're the Giants and a diehard Giant fan, I'm sure part of you are thinking, well, Eli's gone. Let's just rebuild. Let's do this the right way. But now you're bringing in Eli for one more year, thinking you're going to take a shot at it, where you have a conference that, let's face it, it's loaded. 
You know, the Rams are going to be back. You would think if Garoppolo's healthy, San Francisco, I'm not going to say they're going to be back all the way, but you would think they'd be formidable. Green Bay, you know they're going to retool, even though they haven't really done much this offseason. But you still have number 12 at the helm. Vikings, Eagles, Cowboys, the NFC South. A lot of good teams. Gettleman's got to get this right. If he doesn't, it's going to be a bad stain on his resume. Whatever it is that he does here. And we know they need defense. I understand they're bringing Peppers. But they certainly need some more guys. We know Vernon's gone. He's in that trade. Going to be very fascinating to see what's going to happen between now and whenever the draft is. April 25th, I guess. The last Thursday of the month of April. So certainly keep your eyes on that. As far as the Jets are concerned, they get their man in Le'Veon Bell. Not much of a surprise there because a lot of people thought that he would go to the Jets and didn't really have any other bidders for that matter as far as his service is concerned. I know the 49ers were a team that were to be rumored to try to get him, but as we all know, that didn't happen. Not only do you get Le'Veon Bell, but you also get Jamison Crowder, who's a good receiver. Oft injured, but when he's played, he's been very productive, formerly the Washington Redskins. And then on defense, you have C.J. Mosley, who arguably is the best defensive player on the free agent market. He comes, who a lot of people thought was going to be with Anthony Barr, the other linebacker from Minnesota, but had cold feet, so he went back and re-signed with the Vikings. And as far as the Bell moves concerned, easy for me to say because I'm a Steeler fan, but it was a no-brainer. You needed to get a running game, you needed to get a playmaker, and you got that in Le'Veon Bell. Now, how good is he going to be? How effective is he going to be after a year off? You would think his body's going to be as fresh as it could be, as he has said in his interview. But as we all know, you get to week four, week five, (laughs) you know, that fresh body of 2018 is out the window. But it was a move they had to make. And I get that a lot of people are killing Bell because he took less money here than he would have in Pittsburgh, although the signing bonus would have been a lot less in Pittsburgh, but still. So good for the Jets. Sam Donald actually has a security blanket, which is good for him. And they'll have a running game, which is even much better for him. Because you can mix a lot of play action. You have a dual threat there. Obviously, we know how great he is as a pass catcher as well as a running back. So the Jets should be a lot better. Jets should be a 9-10 win team, considering the upgrade they made with Mosley on defense and then now with Bell being part of your backfield. And then quickly on the Steelers, I know that they... Had made some moves. Steven Nelson, cornerback, formerly of the Kansas City Chiefs, and as well as they sources had it, they were going to sign Mark Barron, who is a lethal hitter, although he's been struck with injuries over the course of the years, formerly of the L.A. Rams. So they're trying to solidify that secondary as best as they can. They did sign Dante Moncrief, who was a speedster, a small guy, who had very good success in Indianapolis when he played with Andrew Luck. So hopefully they could work their magic between Ben and him, obviously with the absence of Antonio Brown. So chances are he may be your number two receiver. You still have Eli Rogers. You still have Ryan Switzer on the roster. So the Steelers are going to make those small moves. They're not going to make a big, splashy move. They never do. But, you know, Moncrief, you know, can be good. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, yeah, he's going to match Antonio Brown's production. I mean, please, that'd be just silly. 
But overall, a couple of solid signings there for Pittsburgh, and we'll see how that bodes for them down the road. And I'm not going to go through every NFL signing. I mean, we had there was tons of them. You know, whether you looked at, I know Landon Collins was one. You know, Trey Flowers goes to Detroit, so he reunites with Matt Patricia. Trent Brown, another Patriot, signs with the Raiders, gets that big deal, the biggest deal for an offensive lineman in history, which I believe eclipsed Nate Solder, another former Patriot, in the process. Terrell Suggs goes to Arizona. Remember, he went to college there, so to me, that's just a homecoming for him as he goes off into his NFL sunset. And then the Ravens were depleted big time. Whereas half their defense left, it seemed, whether it was Zadarius Smith, Eric Weddle, of course, Suggs that I mentioned. But they do sign Earl Thomas, which if he has any gas left in the tank, and chances are he will, that's going to be a significant upgrade for them. Where they're going to get their pass rush is a different story, but you're going to have that guy anchor your secondary there's going to be a lot of respect in that room for number 29, which I think it will have that number there in Baltimore. And they also signed Mark Ingram as far as their running game is concerned. So the Ravens making a couple moves. And again, I'm not going to get into every little minor detail. I know Ryan Fitzpatrick just signed with the Dolphins. So Fitzmagic goes from Tampa, drives down, what is that, uh, I-75 over to I-95, and he'll be a part of the Dolphin mix for one year as a stopgap. Because chances are they're going to be a bad team and they'll be in the line for drafting a quarterback next year. So that's what you got in the NFL. Things just start to quiet down a bit. I know there's a couple of players that are still left standing here that uh, a lot of people will probably look at. Players of like that second tier, players that uh, all the top names as we all know are gone. But there's still a few names that are out there that players will probably... Sign here in the coming days and maybe weeks leading up to the draft. And that's pretty much it with the NFL. I mean, listen, I could have done a whole show based on the free agency. But, you know, I talked about the big topics, especially here locally. And again, the Giants, I I thought they should have let go of EI. I'll just leave it at that. Start over. To me, that trade signified a white flag. But they know better than I do. But just based on last year and them trying to Revamp and retool and look what it got him. Chances are if that could be the same situation come here in 2019. All right, baseball. Is anybody ready for a first pitch opening day? Well, you're just 10 days away, especially here in New York where the Yankees will host Baltimore in their opener where Masahiro Tanaka will start instead of Luis Severino. Now, Severino is going to be on the shelf with that rotator cuff inflammation. Tough for him as he signed that deal in the offseason. What was it? The... Uh, Four years, $40 million, but I believe it could be up to five years, 52 And he's on the shelf to at least May 1st. You got to worry about shoulders. He says he's feeling fine. He's going to start throwing on Wednesday. So pretty much spring training is going to start for him on Wednesday. And you would think that he's going to pitch on a lot of simulated games between now and the start of the season. And then he's going to probably be somewhere down in Tampa with their uh, single-A farm system trying to work his way back to Shape, and you only hope and pray if you're a Yankee fan that that's the case. But let's face it, even with him on the shelf, and I even said last week that with Gio Gonzalez out there and Dallas Keuchel, and I get they're not going to spend the money on a guy like Keuchel because Keuchel's going to want years and money, where Gio, you could probably get him on the cheap. 
But how I look at it is that the Yankees really don't need any other starting pitchers. Right, they need people to start, of course. But as we all know, two of the team's strength is their power and their bullpen. So even if starters go four innings, they got five guys that could just ride them out for the rest of the game. Now, can you do that every day? Of course not. And can you do that all season long? Of course not. But guess what? They have the means and certainly the resources if they have to go go out there and trade for somebody, but they have it in-house. I bet you they're just asking, especially for their bottom starters, to go at least five innings. So then you can just patchwork it from there. Whether it's Chad Green to Adam Adovino to Zach Britton to Dylan Batantis to Earldis Chapman. I mean, you can't get any more stacked than that. And you can't forget Tommy Canely. There's another guy that had gotten that trade a couple years ago when they brought David Robertson back. I mean, please. Uh, the bullpen is just as loaded as their offensive lineup. And I, I understand you can't sustain that over a year or a stretch of games, but guess what? That's the beauty of it. If you know that you can get in, let's say, the sixth inning, all right, we're throwing in, you're not going to probably put in Adovito in the sixth, but you were throwing Chad Green. Or then the next day we put Tommy Canely. Or, you know, Adovino went oh, inning in two-thirds. Well, guess what? Now we're going to put Patanzas in. All right, well, now Patanzas can't go. Now we got Zach Britton. I mean, geez. Talk about aces coming out of their uh, cuff of their sleeves. Jeez. So the Yankees will be fine. You certainly can't worry about them as far as their starting pitching is concerned. And besides that, there really isn't anything else to report. How I look at it is... You're just now 10 days away from the start of a baseball season. And next week, we'll get into wall-to-wall baseball. Try to see if I get an old writer, a guy that uh, was on our old show, The Final Word, uh, working on that to get him on to discuss and handicap the 2019 baseball season. And obviously, we'll have a baseball preview, all that. I'll probably post it up next Thursday, Thursday mornings, just so as you're getting ready for opening day, you could uh, hear it in on the way from work. Or if you're on the treadmill, whatever it may be. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the program. As far as the association is concerned. Oh, wait. Let me get through these rule changes real quick with baseball. So 2019, this is all you need to know about the rule changes. So you have one hard trade deadline, which is July 31st. So no waiver wire deals after that. So if you have a guy that's hurt August 3rd, guess what? You can't make a waiver wire waiver wire deal so once you get to I guess 4 o'clock on July 31st that's it your rosters are set and away you go they also have this deal with the all-star election day I really don't know how that goes but it ties into I guess the players or the top three vote getters having to vote who could be on the American League and National League teams which for what that's worth I could care less and then you also have the home run derby where the Winner gets a million bucks. They want to add some more spice to it in the sense where they, you know, they just don't want the average guy or just the, I don't want to say the average guy. They want to get big names there. And I understand you got Bryce Harper last year because the game was in Washington. So, of course, he was going to be a part of that. But they want to get the big names. And look at Aaron Judge. Here's a guy that's making 600000 this year. And you know what? He may even think about signing up for it knowing that, hey, if I can win a cool mill, that's more than what I make in my baseball salary. So why not give it a shot? You know, you may get the Juan Sotos of the world, you know, young guys like that that could be part of the 
future fabric of the game to get them to be a part of this home run derby. Right, will Giancarlo be a part of it again? Knowing that he's got the big money and what's a million dollars to him? The Bryce Harpers, you know, the big sluggers of the game, are they going to right away sign up? Will Mike Trout? No, probably not. But still, it does give them the opportunity to say, hey, you have a chance to win a million bucks. Here it is. Who's going to take it? And then next year in 2020, I believe they'll expand the roster to 26. And then you have the situation with the three batter minimum, which to me I think is a joke. Certainly don't have to worry about that this year, but as we move along into deep into the season and into next year, we can talk about it more, but I don't like the three batter minimum. So, right, if a lefty comes in to try to get a lefty out, I understand as they say speed of the game, but to me that's not the issue. The issue is is the deliberate pitching styles of certain pitchers are just going to take forever to wind up and throw, and the human rain delays in the batter's box, a la Odubel Herrera of the Phillies, taking his sweet time between pitches. You want to speed up the game? Just get in the box, let it rip. Now, as far as the NBA is concerned, it's funny, now with all the college basketball, the NBA is kind of going to take a back seat here for the next couple of weeks. So all I'll talk about here is what you got to look for as far as the playoff scenario is concerned. In the East, we have the top two. Chances are it's going to be Milwaukee, Toronto. The three, four, and five are separated by two games. So you flip a coin to see what's going to happen there. Where you have Philly three, Indiana four, Boston five. If you're a Celtic fan, you want to try to get up to three, which would be great. But if not, you want to get at least host the first round series where you'll be at the four seed. Locally, the Brooklyn Nets, what can you say? They're on a seven-game West Coast trip. They got just... I tell you, forget about humbled. Devastating loss yesterday to the Clippers as Lou Williams hits a three at the buzzer as they start off this seven-game road trip 0-3, and and they still have to go to Sacramento. The Lakers, all right, well, we know about the Lakers and how they performed. Portland, and then they got to go to Philly to wrap up this trip. So they may be looking at a 1-6 trip if things go well against the Lakers. So you got that to look forward to if you're a Net fan as they're hanging on they're right now currently in the seventh seed in the Eastern Conference because there's Detroit and then Miami sandwiched between the Nets. And then out west, it's going to be Golden State-Denver. But then from seed four through, no, from three to eight, from Houston all the way down to the eighth seed, which is Utah, they're only separated by three and a half games. So there's going to be a lot of jockeying for playoff position, and I'm sure whoever's eight, they want to try to get up to four or five, and I don't have a schedule in front of me to see who plays whom over the next three weeks. But fascinating stuff when you look at it from a standpoint of if you're Houston right now in a three seed and you feel like you're comfortable, well, guess what? You have a bad week or ten days. You could be at the bottom of the Western Conference standings as far as the top eight seeds in the West are concerned. So that's just something to keep in mind as we go down the stretch of the season. And then lastly, the words that were said by Walt Clyde Frazier, the former Nick Great, who criticized LeBron James being at the end of the bench, saying that, let me see if I can get a quote from him, saying that we see that he doesn't care. May have been a little bit too strong, but just in Clyde's defense, We've seen this on more than one occasion where LeBron's at the end of the bench. 
And then in yesterday's game, he's talking with Tyson Chandler, who's in street clothes, sitting in the row behind him. And I understand they're all teammates, they're all band of brothers at the end of the day, but that, that's just a bad optic. I mean, when you look at your best player, and I get it, he's LeBron James, and I can't knock him. I'm a LeBron James fan. How could you not be, considering what he's done in his career? But every time he goes to the end of the bench, just like he did in Indiana in that blowout loss, that picture that you saw there that was posted all over the place, and I get that Stephen A. came out today. Ah, oh, you know, it's, it's, I love Carly Frazier. I, we talked to him all the time. But for what he said is out of line. It was not out of line. And I'm sure Clyde doesn't watch every Laker game to see that he's always on the end of the bench there. But, you know, give him a break. You know, this has happened more than once. And then, you know, for Stephen A. to wax poetic about, oh, he's a four-time champion. You know, he's a three-time champion, four-time MVP. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So who cares? Nobody, so what? We know about that. What does that have to do with Walt's words? All he said was that he seems like he doesn't care. And what he means he doesn't care, not about playing the game, because then that's what Stephen A. pointed out. He's like, oh, he doesn't care. He only scored 33 points. He was there to make the last winning shot. He's running around. He's doing what he can. No, he's talking about he doesn't care as far as his teammates are concerned. Because we've seen this on more than one occasion. And then to top it all off, Damon Jones, his former teammate at Cleveland, who was also this morning on Get Up, Comes out and says, well, hey, I had dinner with LeBron last night and he was there with six of his teammates. All right, which six of them? I understand the team is mostly consisted of younger players. And I know Lance Stevenson wasn't in the lineup yesterday, but Stevenson is a Brooklyn kid, so I'm sure he could have been with him. Rondo, JaVale McGee, those are veterans. I want to know which six teammates you were with. If he was with all the young guys, the Kyle Kuzmas of the world, I know Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball out for the rest of the year, so I don't even know if they're traveling with the team at the moment. But yeah, out of those six teammates, how many of them were one, two, three years in the league? And listen, this is not LeBron, this is not knocking LeBron, his playing style, whatever. And I understand he's been a good soldier, a good teammate through his whole career. What you've seen this year, and with everything that's happened with the whole Anthony Davis fiasco, it just raises an eyebrow. And may even raise a red flag. And that's what it did for Clyde Frazier. And in defense to him, yeah, I, I agree with that. And nobody says he has to sit in the middle of the bench or nobody, but he goes all the way to the end of the bench. And he's talking about Tyson Chandler's with street clothes behind him. I mean, it just, just doesn't look good. And I understand you, LeBron, and again, it boils down to the coach. If that was Tyron Lue, I'm sure Tyron would be like, come on, LeBron, you got to engage in your teammates here. Or if that was Pat Riley, or if that was somebody who, you know, Luke Walton, I understand he's a dead man walking, but geez. And he's probably afraid to tell LeBron, hey, could you be a part of this? LeBron will just give him a side eye, and that's it. And then what's Luke Walton going to say at that point? So that's what's happening in the association. And as far as hockey, real quick, I know the Islanders are deadlocked even with the Capitals for first place in the Metropolitan Division. Remember, they do play one last time, the final game of the season, April 11th, which is going to be big because the Caps have a 2-1 series lead over the Islanders. So that game is going to be monumental. Uh, off the top of my head, the tiebreakers after the division, I don't know how that goes. I guess conference, et cetera. So certainly got to keep that in mind. NHL right now is just waiting for those final games. You know, Tampa's just taking the you – know, they're going to be the President's Trophy. They're running away with it. A lot of people think that they're going to be the odds-on favorite to win the Cup this year, considering the year that they've had. But we know President's Trophy winners and Stanley Cup winners certainly don't go hand-in-hand throughout the history of the President's Trophy. So that's certainly something you have to keep in mind. But the Islanders will 
Yeah, and they've been hit or miss. Haven't been great of late. I know the Capitals have cooled off a little bit, so now they're deadlocked even, and the Penguins are just three points behind them, so you can't forget them. When you're talking about the race and the Metropolitan Division's concern, and we'll be attuned to see what's happening with the rest of the NHL. Obviously, as the days and weeks dwindle down to its precious few as we get ready for some April NHL playoff style, as well as the NBA, too. Can't forget them, but it'll be here before you know it. I guess 10 games left in the regular season because the Islanders and Caps have both played 72 games. So 10 games left before we could raise the banner on a run to the Stanley Cup. All right, everybody, that's going to be it for me this week. Feel free to hit me up on any of my social media accounts, J Reels on Instagram, J Reels One on Twitter, just a number, and the J Reels Podcast on my Facebook page. I also have an email address. If you want to send me an email at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, please hit me up. Let me know. Definitely check my social media accounts as well to look for that Odell Beckham Jr. instant reaction. If you hadn't seen it, please do. Also, Feel free to follow me on any of those social media platforms. I'd greatly appreciate it. Not only that, the website, jreels.com, where everything about me, if this is, again, your first time tuning in to me and want to know a little bit about my background, history about me, my quote-unquote resume in my broadcasting slash sports talk years, you'll certainly find it all on jreels.com. And as always, I implore everybody each and every week, can't say it enough, since I'm a one-man operation, I independently write edit, produce, host, you name it, I do it all. So please subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. If I just ask you just to not only subscribe, but also leave a rating, post a review, please feel free to do so because all that's going to do is increase the visibility of other podcasts with the other podcasts in the sports universe, which you know there are plenty. So all that's going to do is increase that, and hopefully it will gain a lot more visibility for some guests, future guests, whatever that may be. And without your help, people, um, of course, I'll still have this show, but not that many people will know about it. And if you do like it, please feel free to go ahead and leave me a rating, post a review, all that, subscribe, because uh, not only will I be forever grateful and thankful for that, but again, it will just increase the visibility and popularity of the program with the rest of the sports podcasts out there. As I'm here each and every week, everybody, every Monday, delivering everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Fill out those brackets, enjoy March Madness, and until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.